Welcome back to the Internet Computer Report. Today we have a special guest, and that is Jordan Last. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on. Yes. <laughs> so Jordan is the foremost developer that I know, third-party developer for the Internet Computer. He's an all-star. He's making uh, or has pretty much made what I think is going to be a primitive in the relational database area for the Internet Computer, and we'll talk about that later. And he also just launched his podcast that exists natively on the internet computer. Uh, so we'll be talking more about that later. Um, but Jordan, well, we really appreciate you coming on. I spoke to you privately and you're one of the only critics I see of uh, network security for the internet computer. And that's what we're gonna dive into deep today. You're also a big Ethereum guy and I'm so excited uh, to be comparing the two with you. So thanks so much. Oh yeah. It's going to be awesome. So, uh, why don't we start by hearing a little bit about how, uh, what you got you into pretty much Definity uh, and your journey from moving to Ethereum to the Definity side of things. Yeah, sure. So growing up, I've always just really loved technology. I was a kid in the 90s um, and the web kind of came around and it just blew my mind with all the amazing things you could do with it. The chat rooms, Yahooligans, they, 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 uh, at my elementary school, they got a computer lab hooked up the internet to it. And then they're like, everyone go on Yahooligans and play little games. And I was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. And so it just has always fascinated me. I've, I've always, you know, I always kind of felt dumb though. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't actually figure out how to get anything onto the internet, but I would just, you know, I had hooked together websites with Word documents and my family had like a hosting plan with, with Comcast so I could kind of push stuff out. And I just loved tinkering and just always felt that the web and the internet just had some amazing power and amazing potential. And really, it really has blessed the world greatly. And, um, part of why it has been able to bless the world so much, some of those core pieces, I believe, are the decentralized nature of the web and the internet, the open source nature of the web and the internet, and also uh, the permissionlessness. And, you know, maybe more on the internet side, the internet is quite decentralized. You know, have hundreds or thousands of ISPs throughout the world that combine their hardware and software to create one logical network, which is amazing. Um, and that, you know, that makes it so that I'd imagine almost every country on earth has access to the internet, um, even North Korea for, for the rich at least. Um, it's also permissionless because I think of that decentralization, right? And it, it's just fantastic. The web, you know, it does inherit some of those properties, but in some ways it, it still is rather centralized it still is rather proprietary in certain ways. And, you know, I am a capitalist, so I don't want to say, you know, we need to tear down all businesses and no one can make money and such, but I also see the power of open source and free software and it's just, it's just fantastic. And so always been just, I've always loved these things. Uh, I studied computer science uh, for my undergraduate degree, which is my only degree. Um, and yeah. In college, dove deep into web programming, 
you know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, declarative design, things like that. And then I also got kind of pretty deep into internet programming itself, learning about TCP, IP, how the protocols are actually implemented. Uh, we, you know, in our classes, we would implement very simple versions of the protocols. And so I, I just, I feel like that's kind of my lens to the world is through, through protocols and especially, you know, it's especially informed by these internet protocols. So, and uh, yeah, also started my first startup in college. It wasn't super successful, but you know, we went at it for a couple of years and I was in charge of all of the software infrastructure um, and the hardware infrastructure, you know, booting up the backend on AWS or whatever other services we decided to use. And so I thought a lot about scaling. I thought a lot about security and really, you know, if you're not a technical person, and by that, I, I, I mean, you know, if you're not a software engineer or an internet engineer, or you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about these things, you just don't realize how difficult it is to push an application onto the internet or onto the web. I think most people just think of the internet as this kind of amorphous mass that you just like, oh, cool. I'll just deploy an application. Oh, it's running on the internet. You know, that's what I thought as a kid. And then I became an actual, you know, internet or whatever, web developer engineer. It is not like that at all. I spent significant amounts of time trying to figure out how to make things secure and how to scale them and significant, like, like weeks or months of like full-time work, just trying to get these things to work and tons of thinking. It's not simple at all. Yeah, so so I would say uh, I completely resonate with where you were when you were a kid. I'm just beginning to like have a passion for these applications and be so interested in how they're built. And now, uh, especially when working with you, even you know, we set up your primitive pseudo graph together, and I realized there's just dozens of pieces that each have their own really deep rabbit hole. And there's so many people in the crypto space, and so few of them that know how to put all those pieces together. And so when I talk to you, I've asked you questions before about decentralization and it's such a breath of fresh air because you come at it at a very like engineering structural way and there's absolutely no nonsense and that's why we have uh or we need people like you that talk about the differences between ethereum and and the security vulnerabilities in the internet computer that others who don't do that really deep engineering uh don't see pretty much yeah so how'd you get your run through it through Ethereum, your interest in Ethereum, and then what made you sort of allocate your time more so to the internet computer? Yeah, so yeah, okay. So going back to kind of the end of college, starting my first startup, sorry. Um, just uh, thinking deeply about these protocols, how to scale my own applications. And that is when it was 2017, right uh, when I was graduating. Um, I finally decided to look into Bitcoin. I had heard about Bitcoin enough. Um, it was probably April, I believe, April 2017. And I was like, you know, what is this thing? So I just, I think I downloaded a bunch of podcasts and just started consuming content. And that inevitably led me to Ethereum. And Ethereum blew my mind as in like, it was this mysterious, powerful concept that I, I did not quite understand. I would listen to podcast after podcast and like um, listen to engineers, listen to people just opining on different thing, different aspects of it. And I was like, what is this thing? I just, like, I know it's powerful. 
I just don't get it. And so, you know, over the next, I don't know, six, 12, 18 months, two years, I just started to learn more and more like, what is this thing? Oh, it's a decentralized computer. It's a new computing environment, something that's never existed before. Like, you know, we, we, get, a new, we get new computers, quote unquote, you know, every, I don't know, few years, decade or so, we get a new computer, a new computing environment, right? We went from the huge room size mainframe computers down to making those smaller and smaller until you actually had desktop computers down to a personal laptop. And then uh, you had the, the mobile computing environments. And every time you, you, you get a new computer, you actually unlock, a new skill is unlocked for mankind, right? New capabilities, it's, it's quite fantastic. And I, I'm just, I'm so convinced that Bitcoin and Ethereum t- together have unlocked a new computer a new you know, logical machine or virtual machine that we have never had before. And it's something that's natively secure. It's something that's, that's decentralized. And that is where it gains its um, unique properties. And so, yeah, dove into Ethereum. thought it was fantastic. Um, just learned all I could. I did a few of my own projects. Um, spent a lot of time on Twitter. I've cut down my Twitter time quite a lot. And I, I think it's, it's <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. probably for the best. <laughs> so, but anyway, so yeah, uh, I did like a podcasting app on Ethereum, on Ethereum, quote unquote, again, most of it wasn't on Ethereum. I just tried to hook like payments and donations into the podcast app itself and just experimented, but it's very difficult to, to, do anything on Ethereum really. Like I've, I've started to notice more and more, especially over the last like six to 12 months, especially with high gas prices. Ethereum's a very primitive machine. Like, yeah, it's powerful, but it's, it's very limited. And whenever you introduce a new computer into the world, it's always limited. It always starts off like very, very, I don't know, slow or low throughput or, or low capabilities, but it has, it has, you know, at least one core capability that no other computer or no other machine has. And Ethereum does have that native security and native decentralization. Super limited though. And so um, the world is searching for ways to improve on Ethereum. And Ethereum is improving on itself. It's gonna move to proof of stake. It's going to introduce sharding potentially. Um, It's moving to rollups. People are working on side chains, all these things to scale Ethereum itself. But still like that proof of stake and that global consensus type uh, protocol or mechanism, it's just, I, I think it's just inherently limited. Like I think Ethereum is going to reach some scalability limits unless it fundamentally alters its design. And I think what the internet computer is doing is taking an entirely new, not entirely, a, a new, a fundamentally new, a fundamentally different approach to this. And I, I discovered the internet computer in 2017 as well. It was a few months later, probably around September, 2017. And I don't really know how I discovered it. Um, I think I was just like Google searching random blockchain things and it just came up and I clicked on the link, read all the introductory material and that was a mind mind blow for the podcast people yeah the vision was amazing 
you know, let's take this decentralized computer and make it an actual world computer. Let's actually, you know, extend the internet protocols themselves to provide not only communication, but also storage and computation. And if you have those three things together, communication of data, storage of data and computation on data, if you can do those in a decentralized manner, we can actually create holistic web scale applications without reliance on a central party. And that is the vision that I love that captured me. I've listened to like everything Dominic Williams has said about it, at least in the past, all his podcasts. And I, I don't think the internet computer, it's definitely, it definitely has not reached its, its vision, but I think it is on a path to reach it. And so there you go. Yes, yeah, how I got into it. I, I've been beginning, like, it took me a while, but I'm beginning to buy the idea that Definity is, or the internet computer is the third generation. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, internet computer, and all these Web3 projects say they're the third phase of it. Uh, I'm beginning to, you know, buy that vision that mm-hmm. the world will run on just smart contracts. Uh, so really interesting stuff. Now we flatter, you know, Definity and the internet computer a lot on the podcast, but rarely do we have an opportunity to speak to critics that are are so familiar with the ecosystem that they could um, say things that only even turn some heads at the Definity Foundation and and you know have the engineers uh, taken aback by um, some of some of those potential vulnerabilities. So could we start talking a little bit about your concerns or reservations? And I know there's oh, yeah. a lot of them. There's a, there's a list that I compiled from your tweets over time that I wanted to get into, um, but we'll just cover the broad strokes right now. Yeah, that's great. And, and maybe uh, let me just say a couple of things, like sure. some disclaimer stuff. So first off, I just want to say the internet computer, I think is an amazing project and I'm very dedicated to its success. That's part of why I'm very critical of the project when I see flaws, because I want the flaws to be fixed, right? I don't want anything to possibly destroy this project because I think this project needs to succeed. It is so powerful. It will do so much um, good for all of us. Also disclaimer, I do have a grant, a token grant from the Definity Foundation for my project Pseudograph, which you might get into later. Um, So just wanna throw that out there. But I've been, uh, um, the grant is a very recent thing and I've been an ardent supporter of the project for years before that. Um, And so, yeah, just with that disclaimer, now let's get into some criticisms and I could be incorrect about these things, but you know, I've reasoned through it myself and with other people, friends, sometimes for hours, we'll just talk about these things, go back and forth. And um, I presented some of them publicly to Definity engineers and uh, I, I don't think they're off base necessarily. So yeah, let's, let's get in. All right. Well, the first one I wanted to talk about was uh, how to do with node replication. And this is a uh, complicated topic, and I don't know too much about how it compares to the cloud, but I have this idea that things in in Google and Amazon Web Services, your data exists on three different servers. And that has a reasonable amount of security because, you know, these server rooms are underwater and super protected and whatnot. But in Ethereum, they're replicated on thousands of nodes. And in Definity, that, that question seems to be sort of open-ended. Uh, so what, like, what is this node replicate? Like, okay, okay. So by the way, what level of, should I, 
what level of uh, let's keep, knowledge let's should keep I it, um, as simple as possible without removing too much nuance? Because okay. I, I think <laughs> I think the our audience is uh, generally just uh, regular Definity enthusiasts. Okay, so let's let's start with like AWS or Azure. So let's start with the normal cloud environment. So if you're just going to deploy like a web application to um, AWS, and if you don't know what AWS is, it basically runs the web. If you have a backend to an application, you're going to probably be running it on AWS or Azure or maybe a couple others. So generally speaking, at least the, the simplest thing you can do on AWS is deploy something called an EC2 instance. That is just a single server. So one of the simplest thing you can do is just say, all right, I'm going to write some code for a backend. I'm just going to deploy it onto AWS. It's going to run on one physical server and that's it. And that physical server is going to be running in one physical data center in one physical region of the world. In fact, you have to choose which region. So for example, you might choose US West two, which is in Oregon, I believe. And you would say, I want to, I, I have to actually choose Oregon, choose actually within Oregon, an availability zone, which is one specific data center, I believe. And you'll actually deploy your application and will physically run on one machine. Oh, cool. But you know, once you boot it up and hook it up to the internet and stuff, all right, you got a backend. Well, there are many problems with this. It is the most centralized you can get it is one machine, one central point of failure, and it's being controlled by one company, Amazon, right? I guess technically two company, like, you know, yourself as an entity and then Amazon as another entity. So that let's, let's take that as the example of like the most centralized you can get probably. Um, and there's things you can do on AWS to, to make it more decentralized, but it gets difficult to do it, right? Um, there are AWS Lambda, which is a new, you know, they're called cloud functions that kind of helps abstract this away, actually helps quite a lot. And uh, there's different container and there's all these things you can do, but that's, that's the most basic. But anything you do on AWS is still gonna be controlled by AWS. And if they don't like you, they don't like your religion or your politics, or they just decide it's not profitable to run the infrastructure that they're running, they'll just pull the plug on you. And you, know, you might have legal recourse potentially, but legal recourse is annoying, I think. Like who wants to go through that? If we can make a better system, then let's make a better system. And so now let's move over to Ethereum. Let's take Ethereum as the most decentralized that you can get, okay? So AWS is the most centralized general purpose computational platform. Ethereum is the most decentralized computational platform because on Ethereum, you take your application and you try to deploy it to as many servers as possible. And every single one of those servers is executing the exact same thing. So any computation for your application will run across all of those servers. So if there are 10,000 nodes participating in consensus on Ethereum, I don't think it's, it's that high, but I think it's in the hundreds of thousands, um, probably in the thousands, then you're going to literally run every state change of your application on every single machine. That's, I would call that maximum decentralization because you can add more machines to that consensus and you'll add uh, a more security because you'll be running the computation, hopefully across more independent parties. Okay, so we got these two extremes. So AWS is nice because it's super easy 
well, not necessarily. It's relatively easy to scale. You can just kind of make your EC2 instance bigger and bigger. Um, I guess you could deploy more EC2 instances and start parallelizing yourself. On Ethereum though, with the maximum decentralization, it's very difficult to scale because you're kind of capped by, um, by an individual machine because the computation is only ever running on individual machines and they all need to agree. So you can't really move too much faster than, than, than those individual machines. And a single CPU can only do, push so much computation and a single you know, uh, piece of RAM or whatever. So at some point you really need to start to parallelize your application. And there's things you could do on a single machine with multiple cores and such. But generally the proof of work protocol is not designed to run um, computations in parallel. It's designed to secure the network in parallel in a way. Um, so there you go. We've got these two, two extremes. The internet computer is kind of in the middle. The internet computer says, all right, we don't wanna run applications on like a single machine, but we don't wanna run applications on every single machine either. So we need to actually partition the network. And these network partitions are called sub-networks. You can think of them as shards. You can think of them as, I guess, as just partitions. Essentially, you'll take every, you know, if, if the network is a giant circle and you have hundreds or thousands of nodes in the network, group all the nodes into circles. And those circles are now sub-networks. Every node is gonna belong to a sub-network. And the subnetworks are going to be responsible for a subset of the applications running on the network. The applications on the internet computer all are called canisters, or at least a canister is the unit of, uh, you encapsulate your, the state of your application and the code of your application into a canister, and the canister is what you deploy. When you deploy a canister, you're going to deploy it, not to just any random node in the thing, but into a specific subnet, and that specific subnet has certain security properties, the most important being the replication factor. And the replication factor is how many nodes is my canister stored on and how many nodes are participating in consensus on the state changes or the updates to my canister. So for example, you might have a subnet that has a replication factor of seven. That means every canister that is deployed into that subnet will be running on seven nodes. Uh, the state will be running, will be stored on those seven nodes and those seven nodes must come to consensus together before any state change is deemed valid. And, oh, also something very important is that the, uh, they're designing the subnets to run across independent data centers. So if you have a replication factor of seven, that subnet should have seven nodes striped across the world in independent data centers, or at least by independent node operators, if possible. That is what they're, they're trying to do to help with security. So that's just a foundation of, of how it works. And then I can go into why it's not perfect. Yeah, okay. If that was a shallow explanation, I'm so excited. You're gonna have a lot of material for your own podcast. Each one of these <laughs> things will be an episode, but. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic explanation of the, the network infrastructure, generally speaking. But uh, yeah, yeah, continue on. Uh, 
the vulnerability. Okay, so okay, so with Ethereum, we've got thousands of nodes securing every application. Well, I just described seven nodes potentially securing application, right? 1,000 minus seven is like 993. There's a huge discrepancy, right? And so we're losing massive amounts of decentralization. And with that, we're going to potentially lose permissionlessness and security and censorship resistance because in a seven node subnet, you only need three parties, I believe. You need three parties to collude to start messing up the consensus. Because you need at least, you, the network can only handle uh, one third of the participants being evil or, or Byzantine or malicious or faulty in some way, right? So in a seven node subnet, I believe you could have up to two um, Byzantine nodes. And if you have three, then your guarantees are gone. You're not gonna know if, if the node is operating appropriately. And then if seven entities could collude to totally delete your canister. So yeah, messing with the state is one thing, but completely removing a canister from the face of the earth would be probably one of the worst things possible depending on your application, right? So like you don't want, eventually I believe decentralized all computers or all the, the entire internet is gonna run on decentralized computers, right? And so we, we can't have this vulnerability if we're storing tax information and all of our, just, you know, we're gonna store everything on these computers. So we, we can't have them be deleted. <clears throat> Luckily, so, so that is a major, major point of concern is the small replication factors of subnets. So how would we fix this? Well, a very obvious way to fix it is to increase the replication factor. Luckily, on the internet computer, you can, you can do that. The network nervous system canister, which we can get into later, that is kind of the all controlling uh, canister that, that kind of governs the network. I mean, it, it does govern the network. Um, it's running, I believe, on a subnet with a replication factor of 28. So there are 28 nodes striped across as many independent data centers or node operators as possible. Even then, 28 is way, 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 way lower than what you're going to get with Ethereum or with Bitcoin. So I've just, I don't think we know what replication factor is going to be required. And so what one way to fix all these things is to just keep pushing the replication factor up. Hopefully we can push it to 50, to 100, 200. I don't know how far we can push it. Um, but um, I asked on the consensus AMA on Reddit, I also have been reading through, I've read like 12 pages of the consensus paper itself. And it does seem promising that we will be able to continue to push the replication factor up without degrading performance too much. Now, it's hard to say what too much means, but uh, I, I think it's promising. Yeah. So we, we will see. So that, that's just one way to fix it is to push up replication. Yeah. Uh how, how we might want to continue with this is, I mean, there's a lot of things we'll dive through and maybe going from the perspective of a, of a hacker is the best way to yeah, okay. get a full picture of, of these vulnerabilities. And I've had people reach out to me and, and they're actually concerned about these kinds of questions. We've sort of been sold this idea that it's the most secure thing ever, perfect randomness, brilliant cryptographers, but there's so many angles that come at it from, and, and you're a great person 
to reach out with because so few people know the answer to, to these questions. Um, but we'll run through all of all of the rest of the problems. I'll ask you real quick, and then maybe at the end we'll get together all of these um, solution prospects. Uh, oh, okay. That that okay. it would take. So another like one of the ways that you spoke about before is the uh, that you could have these Byzantine nodes collude, and what makes the replication more important is the indefinite node settling that we have right now. So you, could you explain briefly what that is and, and why seven nodes, I think that's why seven nodes isn't enough. Uh, yeah, and by the way, the engineers have brought up seven, I think they just chose as like the minimum number. Is there an ideal like replication factor that you see personally um, that you have in mind? Uh, or you don't degrade performance? I don't, I don't know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, like, I don't know how seven nodes versus 28 nodes, for example, I don't know how the performance degrades just from seven to 28. So I think we'll have to see in practice. Honestly, just for pure security, it, it depends. Like some of the mitigations that we're gonna talk about will, will lower the amount of nodes that I think you need. But in my mind, if we can get to the hundreds, somewhere in the hundreds, I'm gonna feel mm -hmm. pretty, pretty, pretty stinking good. So, Let's but hope. even if like, I don't know, I, as high as we can go, and then we'll have to see in practice how the performance degrades, right? Mm -hmm. And how the cost increases as well. Yeah. Okay, so what was your question? Um, um, Evan, no, Evan? Node settling. Oh, node settling, okay. so. Okay, so one issue that I see, and this is just an attack vector, right? Like in practice, would it be extremely difficult to exploit? Potentially, but it's, in my opinion, a very valid vector. So when you deploy a canister, the canister is going to, let's, let's just take a, a subnet with replication factor of seven. You deploy your canister into that subnet. It's gonna go to seven nodes and that canister is just gonna sit there forever. And, better to say indefinitely, right? Unless the subnet splits or a node is faulty and gets replaced or, you know, unless there's a specific action taken to move the node, then the node, the system is designed to just let the canisters just sit in perpetuity. Why is this dangerous? Because if you only need three nodes to collude to start messing with the consensus, Node operators, as far as I know right now, it's relatively simple for them to find out which canisters they're hosting. They can just go look at the traffic, inspect the RAM, you know, open up the node machine and just see what's going on. And you only need to find two other buddies, you know, evil cronies somewhere around the world and just say, hey guys, do you have this canister, blah, blah, blah. You know, you might think that's, well, that's kind of difficult. Well, you, you have weeks or months or years to pull this attack off because the nodes are just sitting there. And so you could just for years, potentially, right? Just sit there, you know, Hey guys, we got the Uniswap canister. Let's just like, you know, we're going to keep track of, of, of everything. We're going to prepare for this. Let's get everything in place. And then we're going to execute order 66 in 2025 or something. Right. And we're just going to take this thing down. That's, I don't want that vulnerability to exist. And so 
you know, if you push the replication factor up, that's great. That helps it because it makes it harder to collude because you need more entities to collude. But a relatively simple mitigation to this. Oh, do we want to talk about mitigations now or, or later? Uh, no, no, I'll just, well, so I'll say, I think what this is loading up to, and I'm going to use your words here is, is islands of consensus. So it's not a global consensus mechanism. And then one of your other concerns was that scaling uh, does not increase security as a network effect, basically. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk a little bit about what that means, and then okay, okay. I think that, that covers most of it. And then we'll get into fixing these problems later, yes, right? Yes, definitely. Okay, awesome. So that's a problem. Does it have a solution? Who knows? We'll find out <laughs> later in the episode. Stick around. But um, So, okay, next. Okay, so that now, now we come to like a major difference in the consensus design of the internet computer versus Ethereum. And as far as I understand, the internet computer is really embracing a, uh, it's kind of a PBFT, practical Byzantine fault tolerant style protocol. It's gonna be similar to PBFT itself or Tendermint or whatever. You actually don't have one global state machine. You actually have many independent state machines that are all coming to consensus on their own state and what's cool about the internet computer is that they can communicate with each other. So you have intercommunication of these state machines and you can easily add more state machines and take state machines out and move state machines around, which is really nice. But the state machine itself, which is the subnet, I believe it's the subnet. And then your canister is kind of a state machine within the state machine, but the whole subnet, I believe is just, you can think of as one state machine. Every subnet has to come to consensus on its own state. It doesn't care about the state of any other subnet. Unless a subnet communicates with another subnet, then you care about that message coming in and you need to come to consensus on any state change on, uh, that the incoming message is introducing. But if like understanding that, we have basically a bunch of independent blockchains, right? And Chanky technology does allow them to communicate in in a very nice way with certain security properties, but you don't have a global consensus. So as you add more nodes to the network, like let's say subnet one is a replication factor of seven. Let's say we're adding hundreds or thousands of nodes to the network. Well, subnet one's not changing. Like I don't care how many nodes there are in the network. Sure, I'll be able to, there will be more applications for me to communicate with, there will be opportunities for me to potentially increase my own replication factor just because there are more nodes. But like, unless my replication factor increases, I'm not gaining more security necessarily because I'm stuck with the original data centers and node providers that I was deployed on. So it's just not helping me. And that's sad because on Ethereum, if you add more nodes, you get more security, but you don't get more throughput. On the internet computer, it's like we just kind of swapped it. We add more nodes, we don't get more security, but we do get more throughput. Well, the vision I was sold was that, well, at least the way I processed it was this network, you could add more nodes, get more security and get more throughput. And that's helping you know, solve the scalability trilemma where we don't really want to trade off security or decentralization or throughput. That's not how the internet computer is right now. 
Does but, ICP, do they have an ability baked into the protocol to penalize colluders and bad actors in order to maybe de-incentivize people from colluding together? Yes, I believe they have mechanisms to, to do slashing, like you're saying, yep. Mm -hmm. Slashing mechanism. But you don't think it would be sufficient if, if there's large well, enough size, people would get together to do it anyway. Let's, let's say like um, seven people decide we're going to just delete a canister. Delete. What are you going to do? Slash them afterwards? It's too late. Like, sure, they'll get slashed. And so, yeah, there are mechanisms in place to prevent this. And I, I think it'd be rare, these attacks, but the, the problem is that attack exists. And I just, I want to have it mitigated if possible, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to have low replication if possible. Like seven nodes would be great because as you increase nodes, you're going to decrease, um, you're going to increase latency, you're going to increase costs, and you're just going to decrease performance. Like it's just inevitable until we have like quantum communication or something or quantum entanglement where we have instantaneous communication between servers, which we don't. Hopefully we have a lot have for that. that. <laughs> I'll be releasing a project uh, in the next few months that will address that. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, Jordan, I think that covers most of the uh, vulnerability things we wanted to talk about. Now there's others like the network nervous system centralization and, mm -hmm. and token stuff, but you like, there's plenty of material here and you're the infrastructure level expert. I, I also want to say on your behalf, these are, so for people who are listening, these aren't things that Jordan just spun up. He's been thinking and pondering upon them for months. And there's been developer calls uh, that I've sat in on with, where team members are asked these questions. I'm like, oh, oh, Jordan, you know, Jordan came up with that. And then the team members are also a little bit confused. So these things aren't been pulled out of thin air. It's actually a lot of months of meticulous thought that go into it. Um, but now that I, there's a bunch of potential solutions, some of which the team is working on, some of which the team still hasn't acknowledged, um, so I, I'll let you go on, you, you know, free flowing. And then I'll, I'll, if I have the opportunity to pick your brain about each one of them, okay. uh, as we go through, that'd be great. Okay. So we've got these potentially very low replication subnets that, and you deploy cancer and they just sit there forever. And it's just security is not a network effect. It's not, you know, one of the emergent properties of the network is not security. Okay. Let's fix this. Okay. Here we go. Mitigation number one, <laughs> in no particular order, but I'm ordering them. So mitigation number one is introduce node shuffling into the protocol. What that means is on some interval, I don't know what it would be. You know, you could think of yearly or monthly or weekly or daily or hourly. You know, you would choose some interval and you'd say, all right, you know, every node or at least one node or whatever, in the subnet, and this could all be configurable, needs to be shuffled to a different independent node operator or data center on that interval. And so your subnet would always be shifting and changing. And the canisters, you know, logically, they'll just always be the same. But the actual physical hardware will always be shifting to independent operators. That would mitigate a lot of these attacks because as a node operator, you you know, you might find out, oh, guys, 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 I got the Uniswap canister. Okay, let's start colluding. Okay, let's execute the You have no idea if, if, the, if the node will have been shuffled at the time. And so all your relationships will be destroyed on a regular interval, which is very nice. And then if you do that, security, I would argue, starts to become a network effect, an emergent property of the network. 
because as you add more and more nodes, you add the ability for, for the canisters or the nodes, the canisters to hide, the subnets, I guess, to hide themselves amongst this sea of nodes, right? You, you're able to obscure yourself. You have this kind of randomness. And, uh, you know, imagine you have, they're designing this protocol to support at least a million nodes. So imagine you have millions of nodes someday. Holy smokes, like they're just all shifting around and everything. Even if they only shift, I, I'm hoping like we could shift at least one node out every day in a subnet. And I asked on the AMA and I think he said that Manu, the uh, one of the main guys behind consensus, he said, I think he said weekly shuffling would be possible. I'm not sure if he said daily shuffling would be possible. He said weekly, or, or more would, would be easily possible, I think is what he said. So this is not like a far-fetched idea actually. And I think, and he even mentioned a hack where you could just write some scripts for the NNS, just some proposals that would just start shuffling nodes. So this actually, I think could be implemented relatively quickly, which is pretty awesome. So yeah. that is just one thing, but even with the shuffling, which I think would definitely help a lot, like you still have a, a problem, uh, here's a separate attack vector that we didn't discuss, but I'll just say it real quick and then provide the mitigation if that's okay. So another attack vector is privacy of data or is, is being able to break privacy of data. So right now in the internet computer, there is really, there's no concept of privacy from the node operators. All the data is gonna be stored in plain text and the node operators can just look at the memory of the machine if they want to and just see everything. But the, the foundation is planning at least what they've said publicly is um, they're working on some kind of secure enclave technology like Intel SGX or AMD's uh, SEV, secure encrypted virtualization, I believe, to at the hardware level encrypt data and try to hide it from the node operators, which would be very nice because then it'd be very difficult for the node operator to even know which canister that they're running. So that's one thing that would stop them from colluding because if you don't know what cancer you're running, how could you attack, right? Or at least it's harder to attack a specific cancer. You could try to just attack whatever canister and, and the shuffling would help mitigate that. But also private data. So with private data, it doesn't matter how replicated it is. In fact, replicating private data makes it less secure, in my opinion. Because now instead of one entity you're having to deal with, you have like seven or 30 or 50 entities that all have the ability to potentially peek at your data. And as far as I know, these secure enclaves, they all have these, they call them side channel attacks. Essentially just, they have attacks that have not, like that, that can't be prevented where like the node operator could set up like, I think magnetic equipment and just sit there and like eventually they could decode the memory. So if you don't have shuffling, then you don't even need to clear with anyone. Just, you know, set up shop, get a ladder, get a magnifying glass, get a Faraday cage, and just you know, start tinkering for hours or weeks or months or years. And eventually you'll probably be able to decode and encrypt the private data and get everyone who knows their social security numbers or whatever sensitive information is being stored. But with shuffling, you're gonna try to do that attack. And as you're doing the attack, you know, the canister that you were targeting might just disappear. Now you might get someone else's private data which still wouldn't be good, but Hopefully it, it, it might help a little bit if you're really trying to get to a specific canister. So encrypted enclaves or secure enclaves, you know, encrypting the canister itself. 
to hide the canister from the node operators combined with shuffling. I think that starts to become a very powerful, you know, uh, the, the network becomes potentially much more secure. And the enclaves they're working on as well. So shuffling seems reasonable in the relatively near-term future. And the enclaves seem reasonable in the relatively near-term future. This is great. These are two great things. Yeah, yeah. I, I would just like to add to this. And I love these conversations because it, remind, it, it reminds us that there's no absolutes when it comes to internet security. So, every, you know, there's always an attack vector, but you're just decreasing the probability by combining a, a bunch of walls in, in the way to that happening. And the things that you mentioned, Definity is so well placed to do it. For example, and I know that particularly, so chain key technology, which is unique to Definity, uh, the reason that they can do this node shuffling, as I understand it, is that there's no historical blockchain saved. And there's what these things called catch-up packages that allow a node to just sync with, uh, sync and find it get, it, get its secret share and become part of its relative subnet without having to download a, a giant blockchain like you would with Ethereum and, and Bitcoin. And then the hardware enclaves thing, um, the, the BLS cryptography behind it, from what I understand, these side channel attacks, I've heard Dan Bonet talk about this. Um, the BLS guys, are, you know, it's a big part of Definity and you could argue that they're pioneering its primary use case. And they're, they're first and foremost for these hardware enclaves and it was just mind boggling. So Dan Bonet was explaining one application being inside of your computer, you're running the actual screen and the side channels with their crazy cryptography would, would mean if someone took full control of your computer, they wouldn't be able to see the keyboard or the screen because that would run in the enclave part. And it, mm. I think that runs analogous to what they're doing in the nodes. And you don't hear it like, as far as I could tell that these are rare circumstances and the fact that we could even talk about these solutions is pretty unique uh, to the internet computer. I, I think you could you know, disagree if, if I'm missing parts of that, but it's really cool stuff. And I think it's great that we even have the opportunity to, to speak about solutions that are practical because of the technological foundation that has been built over the past five years. And there was uh, one more element of this and, and one more solution uh, that I wanted you to bring up because it was the first time I heard of it. So Definity recently open sourced their code and I'm one of the people that, that are guilty of asking for the code to be open sourced. And then it went in open source and I, I can't even look at it because you know, it's way over my head. And when you get to this level of computer science innovation, it's very, very hard to have third party checks on the math because it is a, so, such a narrow, narrow field. So I think you uh, gave a suggestion of, of how the Definity Foundation might do that. You, yeah. You're talking about the uh, bug bounty? Yes. Okay. So as far as I understand, you know, the Definity Foundation has worked very hard internally to you know, formalize their consensus mechanisms, to engineer these nodes and implement the cryptography, to run their own security testing and audits. And who knows, they may have contracted with outside parties, I don't know, to do it. But I think a gold standard that other, you know, uh, Ethereum and the smart contract or DeFi applications running on top of them they are securing billions of dollars worth of value. And a gold standard in security amongst those projects is 
as, as I see it at least, is public bug bounties, very, very large public bug bounties as well, where we incentivize people with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And we say in a white hat way, please, let's find every vulnerability possible. We will reward you handsomely if you can you know, disclose them uh, responsibly, right? And I would love to see the foundation do this. They just opened a $200 million CHF dev program. That's great. Let's get developers, but you know, maybe open a similarly sized or cut that one in half and make an equally sized one for security. This network has to be secure. We, we do not want it to be taken down in any way. I would just love to see a bug bounty program and a long running one. Let's just always incentivize. Let's make it more worthwhile, especially in the beginning stages. Let's make it more worthwhile for people to do it the responsible way than you know, to actually try to hack the network. Yeah, I absolutely, uh, I love that. I mean, we're going to be advocating for that as well. Uh, you know, maybe it'll be a network nervous system proposal and convince yeah. the foundation to get moving on that. Super cool. Uh, if there's anything else you want to add, feel free. But I, I would like to dive into Pseudograph now and uh, so your podcast and some of the other things you're working okay. Um, yeah, we'll just leave it at that for now. Oh, wait, let me just check actually. I just want to, cause there might be something super amazing that we missed. Sure. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think that's pretty good. I mean, we didn't talk about the internet, but that's a whole nother, a whole yeah, different it's topic. A big so, so, uh, yeah, let's go, let's go into whatever you want. Okay. Um, what tell everybody what pseudograph is and well a, a lot of people will know what pseudograph is so for example I, I you know i'm working with someone who decided to port their application to the internet computer and they didn't know what to do with these hash maps there was no relational databases and i said you made this whole thing on pseudograph um they're making a pseudograph primitive on the internet computer and that's actually you <laughs> so I, I would like to know what went into that and what you kind of see oh yeah uh, this being used for Okay, so something that they've said over and over is you won't need databases. So I would rephrase that. You won't need, well, you, you can't use traditional databases. You, you're going to need something else that is potentially much simpler to use than a traditional database. But you do need some kind of data structure that will allow you to store large amounts of data and to represent relationships between data and to provide powerful querying or searching capabilities so that you can search through all your data and search through your relationships and just all the things that you might need for you know, an application. Um, they're really pushing to use basic hash maps and arrays and all these things, which is great and it's beautiful, but it's just not sufficient. It's simply not sufficient for probably, I would say most applications. And so pseudograph is really, at least most applications as they become non-trivial, non I guess. Pseudograph is really trying to provide a very elegant, flexible, simple GraphQL API, well, a GraphQL database essentially. So all the hash maps and vectors and the searching and querying functionality that you will have to make for yourself. Like you're gonna have to make this. I've already done it or you know, I'm working on, on doing it for you. 
and I'm exposing it to you in, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful ways possible, and that is GraphQL. And so with Pseudograph, you just come in and you define a schema using the GraphQL schema definition language. It's a very simple language. You just describe the types of your system. You know, I have users. Uh, I always bring up blog posts, but there's gotta be other apps you could build too, you know. Users, uh, like a Google Drive thing, users, files, a file will have whatever fields it has, um, published at, last modified at, the actual bytes of the file, and the file could have permissions on it. The permissions would link back to users. You could say these 10 people are allowed to view it. And so you're, you have this relational data. And with Pseudograph, you just define that data. You know, even people who aren't super intense developers, you can look at a GraphQL schema and understand what's going on. And you could probably even write one yourself and you could essentially deploy that. And then it will generate an entire database for you. And then you just use the GraphQL schema or the GraphQL query language uh, to, to read and write from your database and to do all kinds of searching. So that, that is awesome uh, and really interesting. I misspoke before. I said pseudograph. I meant they were building with GraphQL and they should move over to pseudograph on the internet computer. So oh, I see, yeah. what's the roadmap and uh, how can people get involved or, or they, if they want to use it? Yeah, so um, I'm, the next two months especially are just going to be intense work on it. And so expect, especially like very soon, I'm trying to release version 0.2.0. That's the version that has relations. That's the version that will have uh, a lot of updated documentation. I'm going to start pushing out videos as well to just get people going. But you can start on it right now if you want. You, there's a beta version um, that you can just get going. The documentation isn't super good, so you would have to just kind of look at the examples in the repo. Or you could just DM me. I'm happy to do a video call with you, and you can get going right away. The roadmap beyond that is just adding more things like paging and filter, uh, paging and ordering, right? Like if you have a thousand records, you don't want to always return a thousand. You might want to return just a subset of them. And you want to order, be able to order by different fields. I don't have that kind of stuff right now. Um, also migrations, I think are a very important thing. Next step, when you change your schema and deploy right now, it will just kind of break. It's, it's not like, it's, it's more suitable for prototyping where you're going to blow away the state of your application every time you deploy just to test it out. Um, so it's more of like an Ethereum smart contracting right now where you got to get it right and then push it. But I want to add migrations where if you change the schema, it will automatically upgrade all the data behind the scenes for you. Or if it can't handle it, provide you a simple way to do that migration yourself. So that's very important. It's a, just a very important database thing that you need for any database. And then after that is, well, I, I don't know which order to do this in, but scaling. Right now, Pseudograph is limited to a single canister. So you could make one schema per canister and you could, you know, you could scale infinitely like that, but the relations and searching aren't gonna easily work across canisters. You'd have to write your own blue code to figure that out. The dream would be one schema, deploy it, and then Pseudograph will spin up more canisters for you as your application needs. That would be beautiful. And then beyond that is authentication where I want you to be able to put into the schema just with very simple annotations like this 
type of user should be able to access this field and this type of user should access this field. And this whole type should be deployed to a special subnet with extreme security. This type only needs to be on a subnet with this type of security and all kinds of stuff like that. If all that's done, and really I see pseudograph as, I really see it as the main way to develop on linear computer. It's going to be so simple. You're going to have annotations for like all kinds of things, any setting, hopefully like many different settings that you want. You just kind of put them in and all the under the hood stuff that you would have to do manually, it will just kind of do for you. And that's kind of the, the roadmap for now. Yeah, I, I don't think um, most of the non-developer audience here would get an appreciation for this, but that's sort of the number one question I get from new developers that are like, how do you do this without relational databases? And this is absolutely huge. You're the only person, you're the only person doing it. It's so awesome. I have no idea how, <laughs> but I'm really glad that you are. Let uh, me just correct one thing. There are, so I don't think pseudograph will be the only way to do this. I, I think people might might love it the most because GraphQL is amazing. Um, there is another project that someone's making. They're making a graph database. It's different than GraphQL. It's it's a different database architecture. And so they're working on that. And so, and there might be other, I think there's people trying to get SQLite to work. So I think there will be a variety of, of solutions, but, but I think you will need to choose one of these solutions to use. Yeah. So doing it yourself, you're just all gonna run into the same problems and it's not gonna be super fun, so. Yeah, it does. I mean, it might be fun, but very tough to develop without those. Um, this this will be my last question for you. So I I, I know you. Well, I, I just want to get an overall picture for how you see the future of Ethereum and Definity coinciding. Um, can they coexist? Will Definity supercharge Ethereum? Will they live in harmony, etc.? And then maybe tie this into your podcast. So I'll leave you all your information so you everyone watching could find uh, Jordan and his various channels. But just get us, give us an idea of your vision on that and then what the podcast uh, is. Yeah, so it's, it's very intriguing because if, so I don't believe in a multi-chain future where you have many chains with the same capabilities all servicing many different people, right? I just don't think the world works like that. I don't think protocols work like that. You always consolidate you know, per domain or per application domain, per, you know, capability domain, you have one or a few winners. It's, it's evident everywhere. The internet protocol is one of the best examples. You have one IP protocol. You don't have like 10 IP protocols that everyone's trying to use. You have one and it takes forever to upgrade it. And then we all hopefully move to that new version. Same thing with web browsers. We have like four main web browsers but they all implement the same standards. There's one logical standard, one protocol for those. And with operating systems, it's similar with search engines. It's similar with all these like massively, you know, these massive platforms where it's kind of like a, I guess a, a protocol, it, it consolidates. And so I imagine, especially for something that is trying to extend the internet to have computation storage, it is a base layer internet protocol in certain ways. I imagine there should only be one or a handful so then we need to decide, well, if there is truly one application domain and Ethereum and Internet Computer both have the same properties or one is clearly superior, then it makes sense that that, that computer would win. The problem is, or I guess the, the truth is right now, their consensus and security properties are so vastly different at this point in time 
that I don't think one of them is going to just win. So Ethereum, it, with its global consensus, that will be, in my opinion, for the foreseeable future until we really experiment with subnet replication factors and really figure out how that works. Ethereum is still going to be the most secure decentralized computer. So if you need, if your application requires the greatest security possible, you will deploy to Ethereum. Now, if security is not the absolute most important and you really need that throughput with pretty good security, then I think you'll deploy to the internet computer. So in the short term, I see Ethereum still doing its thing, especially with like DeFi and anything with huge amounts of money. And anything around Ethereum, for example, front ends, for example, storing actual like user profiles, doing social recovery type thing, anything where you need like large amounts of data or large amounts of computation to support the master logic or settlement on Ethereum. I think that will easily, maybe not easily, but over time is gonna just get sucked into the internet computer. It's just gonna make so much sense. We haven't even gotten into like the front end and why I think the internet computer is gonna be the most secure front end experience ever because of chain key and other things. But like people are gonna deploy the front ends to the internet computer. People are going to, I mean, I don't know if Infura and these other um, Ethereum integration things, they might not survive. Like they, they actually might be competed out by the fact that the internet computer itself is actually going to simply interoperate with Ethereum on its own in a very highly scalable way. Um, so yeah, front ends, just anything that, that you would have to deploy on AWS or Azure to support your Ethereum application. I just think the internet computer is just gonna support those things. And so we're just gonna get more and more people actually, you know, the Ethereum ecosystem, learning more and more about the internet computer, actually finding true uses for the internet computer, but maybe not the actual core smart contracts themselves, at least for a while. So that could be, that's one possible future where it just is like that forever, where they're just truly sister networks. You know, you have Ethereum at the core and the internet computer surrounding everything else. And this is like, you know, the, the solar system of, uh, of, of decentralized computing for a while. But what you might see happen is, you know, if we go with the solar system example, you know, this, the internet computer is, has, it's gaining so much gravity. It's sucking so many things in that it starts to actually pull apart, you know, the sun that is Ethereum and it's just, the gravity is just ripping it out. And you might actually see new applications, even DeFi and things that are storing large amounts of, large amounts of value being first deployed to the internet computer. I imagine that people will experiment with this. And then as we prove it out, it's like, well, wait, why would we deploy an NFT to Ethereum when we could deploy, when we are, why would we deploy an NFT to Ethereum when the NFT metadata is already stored on the internet computer? Why don't we just store the entire NFT on the internet computer and maybe bridge back into Ethereum? And then eventually you might see, well, wait a minute, like Uniswap is so limited on Ethereum and the internet computer has 100 node subnets with shuffling and secure enclaves and million dollar bug bounties and no one's ever hacked it or it's been hacked a few times, but like it's been a year since any hack and then blah, 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 I don't know. Then the Uniswap's just like, well, okay. You, the internet computer is just like ZK Sync or optimistic rollups or whatever. Let's deploy there. Holy smokes, it's so good that that's now the canonical solution and Ethereum is now a side chain to the internet computer. And I think that could be a potential future too, where it just sucks everything in, including the core smart contracts. And then we move forward there. 
I feel like those are the two most likely possible futures. I absolutely, uh, I love that, Jordan. And I, I love that you, when you say these things, you actually understand what's going on at a low level. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are of that opinion, but when you describe it, it's especially uh, meaningful. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, podcast, you just started oh, yeah. and I hear it's on the internet. Is it officially on the internet computer? Okay, so here's what happens. <laughs> So last night, I actually did a, a podcast with someone else, uh, the Internet Computer Weekly with uh, Arthur Falls, right? And, and afterwards, I was like, you know what? I'm like doing a podcast tomorrow too. I promised people that I'll do my own. Why don't I just record an episode real quick and uh, try to deploy it onto the Internet Computer because I have access to, uh, to, be, to, to deploy. So I just opened up Audacity, recorded like 25 minutes or something. I was like, okay, here we go. Made a new folder, made a dfx.json, <laughs> made a, a RSS feed, and then put the MP3 file in that file. And I said, dfx deploy dash dash network IC. And I hit enter. And it deployed everything <laughs> to the internet computer. Incredible. Yeah, really cool. I mean, it might have been a couple extra little steps there, but that was pretty much it. It worked just like development locally. And then I was able to access the RSS feed from my browser, access the audio files from my browser. Then I, uh, I tested it on, on my podcast app that I made a, few, uh, a year or two ago. It was working. I submitted it to Apple Podcasts. It's on my phone, on, on the Podcast Addict is what I use. I have the episode downloaded. I'm just waiting for Apple Podcasts to officially show the episode on their official website because that's the one I want to share with people. So it's, it's hosting. It's, it's, it's straight off the internet computer. The whole thing. I have a website, very simple front end. I have the RSS feed and I have the audio files all on the internet computer. <laughs> and it's, it's working. It's just, it's working. So. Yeah. Amazing stuff. You want to add anything? No, or, uh... Yeah. I, that's the question I wanted to hit was on the Ethereum Definity. So I always appreciate your insights on that. Sweet. Cool. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good one, Jordan. Take it easy, man.